0: actually kind of surprised how much it's actually kind of kind of meant to me you know like uh, in a strange way because I don't think about things in terms of numbers generally I just kind of do what I do and keep doing it you know keep looking forward but having it be 30 years is kind of it's unavoidable that you're going to have a little bit of reminiscence occurring and of course also when you do things like tour the country and go places you haven't been in a while with a lineup that hasn't played together in a while since the classic days supposedly of the band there's all these people that come out of the woodworks too and that kind of stimulates something in your brain as well, because you, know, cause you haven't seen these people for a long time. you know. Um, but in general, no, I don't think about it in terms of numbers at all. So it's kind of strange.
1: Somebody at some point must had to have been, oh, we're coming about 30 years, we need to, to do something. No, it.
0: actually, that's not what happened at all. What what really <laughs> had occurred is that for a long time, we've been trying to get uh, our Geffen records, that the Geffen era records that we put out in the 90s, uh, Dear 23, Frosty on the Beater, and Amazing Disgrace. We've been trying to get those reissued for a long time. And there's this label called Omnivore uh, Recordings, and they've already reissued our first record, this record called Failure, which you're probably aware of. But we've been trying for the last three or four years to actually make the other three records available and you know, do the deluxe kind of repackaging and, and treatment to them as well. And it's just taken this much time to actually make it happen. And just by Kismet, uh, when it finally looked like it was going to be a reality, it, it did coincide with the fact that it had been 30 years of the band, and it was just kind of unintentional but worked out that way.
1: Are people still interested in the physical document? A, a lot or all of these are available on streaming services.
0: Well, I mean, in the case of our fans, <laughs> I mean, since you know we do come from a, an era when physical was still something that was relevant, <laughs> uh, yeah, people. And I think peop- there are also people in this day and age that enjoy a nice piece of ephemera, I guess, you know, something they can hold and, and touch, something that's like tactile, you know, versus just having to be out there on the ether on the internet. And you know, that's another another reason that you know it's so cool that we have these we have omnivore on our side because they're the kind of label that knows this they they you know That's their bread and butter is making kind of like library archive versions of material that, you know, hopefully will never have to be remastered or repackaged ever again. So you could say these will be the definitive versions, hopefully.
1: I work in tech and I talk to a lot of people about crowdfunding campaigns, you know, Kickstarter, Indiegogo, things like that. And one thing that they've told me pretty much across the board is this is is a good opportunity to gauge whether people are interested early on, you know, before you go through the effort of churning all of this out, you can kind of get a bit of a bellwether with regards to how many people are interested in the product.
0: Sure. Right. I mean, because you're pre-selling things basically, and and, and you totally can got to get a vibe as to how many you should manufacture and all those kind of things. Yes, that's true.
1: Was that your idea, to sort of go out there and
0: front-load it in that way? Well, you know, the, the Pledge Music campaign was just a necessity, really. I mean, I don't know how much you've heard about why we need to have done that that campaign, but the reality is is those records don't belong to us. They belong to, well, Universal Music is now the parent company that owns the masters to these, and we're still recouping on them, I think. I don't think any of those records sold enough to, I mean, we might have just gotten there, but they still have the rights to them. So, in essence, what we're doing is we're renting our own material so that we can make physical copies of these remastered versions. In fact, we have no digital rights. Uh, It's still going to be kept by Universal. And also they, you know, for however however many copies we manufacture up front, Universal wanted their cut immediately. So whether, you know, let's say we made 5,000 copies of Frosting on the Beater. Before we sold one of them, we have to, you know, pay the label their their fee, their licensing fee for 5,000 copies before we even sold a single copy. And so that's that's why the Pledge Music campaign. we need to raise, like, I think about $90,000 to put out three records. And then that's just to put them out. I mean, there's there's no profit in that for us at all. It's just to make those records available and exist, basically.
1: This is one of the obvious downsides to signing with a major label, but um, do you feel like overall that that decision was an, a net positive for you guys?
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, yes, because... You know, I come from the uh, the era and the day when there was still a lot of money floating around in terms of advances. You guys were right. I mean, you were in, in the right the place at the right oh, time. We, sh- we sure were. I mean, you know, we, we rode that, that you know, one of the last waves yeah. of, like, uh, you know, big money and big recording budgets and tour support. Not so, only just being, a, you know,
1: indie or college rock band at the time, but being a Seattle
0: Right, which you know, it's, it's it's interesting because uh, we never really totally fit into what became typically known as whatever you could consider the zeitgeist of, of, of the day, you know, in Seattle, but we certainly benefited from the fact that we were from that town as well. I mean, because yes, there are people that just because you're from Seattle are going to, you know, want to book you and play you and, or write about you. That's a huge thing. I mean, you know, when that was occurring, when Seattle was becoming an international, you know, international phenomenon, every journalist from every country in the world flew to that city and hung out and tried to get the story and the scoop. And, you know, I was there for all of that. You know, we we were there for all of it. I mean, it was it was something to behold, um, and also, you know, now that there's like the internet it doesn't happen in the same way. People don't have to like do all this traveling and, and this kind of like grassroots kind of old school journalism. Well, it's become a whole other thing now with blogs and whatnot, which is also great. We witnessed the end of an era, I guess you could say.
1: I get the feeling having listened to interviews with you that you felt like the music that you were producing that you have produced all these years was, I don't know if ahead of its time is, is right way, way of putting it, but that indie rock has kind of circled back around to that. I oh, mean, totally. You were in the right place at the right time, but maybe aesthetically not a great fit because you weren't a grunge band. I mean, that's what they were looking for at the Attire. Well,
0: yeah, sure. And it's, 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 I think the timing does have something to do with it. And I do think what has occurred finally is that what we do has now become more popular and more of the norm. I mean, I, you know, look at a label like Sub Pop and look at how, you know, they reinvented themselves. I mean, you know, could you imagine Fleet Foxes getting signed to Sub Pop, you know, in, in 1991, you know, or, or, you know, friends of ours, uh, it's like Tad and Fleet Foxes. Well, right. It just, you know, it, I mean, can you name a grunge band that's on Sub Pop now? I mean, would the, would the Postal Service have occurred back in 1991 when grunge was big? It's been interesting to to note that you know there's so many bands I think that we don't sound exactly like but we're cut from similar cloths like I even think like the shins for instance I mean you know we're we're closer to that kind of 60s kind of pop and the the melodies and but it wasn't about that at the time it was more about heavy rock and aggressive vocals and Ken and I just our vo- our voices were too pretty for the moment, I think, because we have very harmonious voices. We weren't we weren't screaming, and we didn't sound like we were angst ridden, even though we r- we really were. You know, we're a very complex band, I think, really, The Posies, because it's hard to categorize us. But in the end, I think you got to be able to put us in the library somewhere. I mean, you, I mean, what where do you categorize a band like us? Are we a pop band, a rock band? Are we '60s influenced? we we're, we're kind of an all of the above, I think, really. I think now would have been a much better time for us and what's kind of ironic now is that actually there are younger music fans getting interested in what we do and coming to our shows that aren't the kids of the parents that used to listen to us like actual people that have found us now on their own because they're listening to things now and they're trying to find things that sound similar and we end up coming up a lot and I do think it proves that, that timing can be everything
1: you did find kindred spirits at the time you know you toured with teenage fan club I think that's a pretty good example it's not like there was nobody really doing what you were doing at the time
0: no that's that's true and they had more success You know, overseas Like a lot of the bands That we admired, honestly You I mean, guys kind of did too, right? I mean, you, well, you did pretty well in Europe We did pretty well in Europe That's for sure And especially on the last record We did forget For An Amazing Disgrace I mean, Frosty on the Beater Kind of was the, our introduction To Europe, basically When we did a this incredible Two-month tour Opening for Teenage Fan Club Where it was a 3 band bill Every night And it was like ourselves opening and then either Juliana Hatfield three and or Super Chunk. It's pretty good. Uh, and sometimes <laughs> yeah. Pulp and sometimes Pulp actually was in the middle slot and then Teenage Fan Club. And it was two months. And we went to every major European capital and we spent you did twenty shows in the UK alone. And you know, that was our first shot at Europe. And you can imagine how exciting that was too. And uh, we killed it every night. You know, We came out and played a half hour set. And to be honest, we were actually more aggressive and louder than the headliners because we're, we're more of a rock band than teenage fan clubs, especially if you see us live. So we would come out and just, uh, we kind of boot people away and we're having a great time. Do you feel
1: comfortable with the level of success that you guys have attained as a band?
0: Hmm, That's an interesting question. I mean, if I'm honest, I, I feel like maybe we have deserved more than we've had, but I'd at the, by the same token i'm not unhappy with what we've accomplished because the mere fact
1: that you've been able to do what you've done for as long as you have is success in and of itself well
0: that is, that is a total form of success and also we've done it on our own terms and also we're not we're not one of those bands that had like one hit that everybody really knows and doesn't care maybe about the rest of the material you know
1: a mix a mixed blessing right i mean it would know, be blessing. nice to have that
0: one big hit it sure would right to to you know, maybe it would help with more of the bills and things like that but i have friends who ha- are, you know are in bands like that that have had that one hit and you know the grass is always greener because they they resent that hit and something else i've noticed at these 30th anniversary shows that we've been doing is that you know i look out in the audience and Generally, everyone is singing along to almost every word of every song that we're playing, and I realized that they're kind of Lifer fans. You know, they're they're not fly by night, and just they're they're into everything that we do. They like the catalog, so that that is a gift too. But I think we deserve more commercial success, I, and it kind of is shocking to me because very naturally. We tended to write songs That sounded like They could be Hit songs on the radio Anyways to me It wasn't like We were some like You know Avant-garde You know Band or something like that We were writing Hooky catchy melodies It
1: was this weird mix Of really good timing And also bad timing You know obviously Before you came along There were plenty of bands That were doing that That had big radio hits And then you said There's been a wave Subsequently But it just wasn't The sound of the time
0: It sure wasn't That's what happens sometimes I mean it's funny There's there's some parallels With Big Star for instance You know uh, here's, Here's a band That delivered Incredible records That were completely ignored yeah. When they came out, you know, and they were being distributed by a soul label, Stax. You know, when you go to the Stax Museum in in Memphis, you know, there's, they're they're like a footnote in the museum. Yeah. But then, you know, of course, what 35-40 years later, yeah. Rolling Stone magazine puts all three of those big star records that were ignored are now on the top five hundred records of all time. You know, so it just it's timing. It's about how things are delivered. The, the analogy I always use is like you can write this beautiful letter to someone, you can and you can put it in the post office. If no one delivers the letter, it doesn't matter how beautiful the letter is yeah. written. I mean, it doesn't matter what the quality is or what it says, I mean, no one's going to hear it if it's not delivered properly. And that's where marketing and timing, I think, comes in. And we definitely benefited from some of that and honestly when you ask me if I think is it positive what happened to us with being on the major label and out of course it is because we have the fan base that we still have now as a result really of those three records we did for Geffen and all the tour support and the videos they made and all the things they pumped into us I mean we benefited greatly from it they dropped $70,000 on that Teenage Fan Club tour setting us to Europe I mean people were lucky to get $25,000 to make a record these days I mean that was just for tour support back then so we were very lucky and yes I think there's a touch of it that is like why didn't it quite go past you know a certain point and get it just a little bit bigger, even.
1: There's got to be pressure when they're spending that level of money on a band to maybe change with the times to do something that would potentially be more popular.
0: Yeah. Well, it's funny, too, because they, they, they make projections, you know, in in, in corporations like that. Because, you know, of course, the big label is a corporation and they're looking at, you know, projections and the bottom line, all those kind of things. And we were actually projected to sell a lot more than we actually did. And some other bands, believe it or not, Nirvana, were actually projected to sell less copies Than we were I kid you not Oh the irony You know But I mean you know It just proves that Nobody really knows either If people knew what The formula was Then they'd do it Every time
1: You never succumb To that pressure To do something That would be more Potentially commercially viable But
0: the thing is I think what we did Was very naturally Commercially viable I mean I don't think Anybody would disagree listening to those records and and even in that era we still were rocking and heavy and and made rock music too so it wasn't like we were trying to do like reggae or something like that but and another thing i should mention is that we were you know we were signed by this incredible a&r man at keff and this guy this man named gary gersh he signed sonic youth teenage fan club the Posies, and then he signed Nirvana. I mean, Nirvana was after, I think, all... We, we, we made record before Nirvana. We were signed before Nirvana. I think the Sundays, as well, is another band he signed. But I mean, it's a pretty amazing little resume of things to sign for one guy to kind of cultivate and curate, proving he, was, he was, had a pretty good taste, I have to say. And also that, that the label that we were on, were like, you know, they're pretty ahead of the curve of trying to get... I mean, if they could attract these kind of bands, I mean, it was the place to go. And I mean we were thrilled to be on that label
1: you mentioned the bands with the, the, the one hit and one that comes to mind and I suspect that you know them fairly well are Harvey Danger
0: well that's so interesting because that was the band that I was thinking of my friend Sean Nelson of course who we had on the show yes. and he, um this is so amazing because this is so exactly, this is exactly what I was thinking of and I didn't mention I asked him if he had any regrets
1: if there was anything that they didn't do at the time you know maybe because it wasn't punk enough or, or for, for any other reasons and he told me that the biggest regret as a band was when they played Letterman and they're doing flagpole Sitta and Paul Schaefer, uh and his bands wanted to back them up, and they wouldn't do it because it wasn't punk enough.
0: And, and then, of course, I mean, I, I know Sean really well, actually. And you know, in retrospect, you look back on some of these things and probably wonder why can't why didn't we just lighten up and have a good time? Are there any examples of something that you feel no, like now? no, no? I mean, with the, with, I mean, uh, the only thing I would say is that we were a little uptight about controlling how our our records were made and how they sounded yeah. to the point when we've ignored some advice that maybe we should have taken, which is that, and this is no disrespect to uh, to John Lecky who produced Dear 23, but the mix on Dear 23 at the time was a very lush and kind of effects laden affair, and it was suggested to us by our our man Gary Gersh that maybe we want maybe want to think rethink it and try mixing it in a different way that was closer to the way that we sounded live because you would come see the Posies live at this point and it would, we'd sound more like Husker Du or something like this it would be like this twin guitar attack with like harmony vocals. Well, there's Husker Du basically, and then you hear this record and it's it's a really cool record, but it didn't present the visceral aspect of the band and I think it made that a harder sell initially for us especially, like we got, kind of got saddled with this kind of lush 60s pop tag and then we put out Frosty on the Beater later which was more aggressive and sounded more like we did live, you know
1: So you're telling me sometimes the A&R man actually has a, what I'm a telling good
0: you, idea? Yeah, in fact <laughs> it's so funny, I mean you know, they, they kept asking us to keep writing songs on uh, for Frosty on the Beater too and the last two songs I wrote were Flavor of the Month and Dream All Day I mean, you know, along with Solar Sister, that's like the one, two, three punch at the beginning of that record as far as what I would consider, you know, three potential single hit type songs, you know, and, you know, I, I wrote Flavor of the Month actually as a kind of a candy coated kind of middle finger to my A&R man at the time, basically saying, okay, you want me to write a hit? I'll I'll, I'll write a hit about how everything is, sounds the same. And, you know, it's kind of like a machine and the less than pleasing aspects of the, the music business. In the end, you know, I got to be honest, I I think he was totally right. And we should have listened to his advice and things. And there's some things we didn't that we should have. But it's so funny. I mean, in hindsight, now that we're here and now that, you know, we're doing the 30th anniversary, it's like, yeah, I look back at some of those things and realize, God, you know, sometimes just breathe, relax and try to enjoy what you're doing, too, you know. And it's a fine balance between taking yourself seriously and too seriously.
1: Have you gotten better about that in your older age? Oh, yeah.
0: You realize that time is precious and is getting shorter and you start to let go of things because you realize there's only so much energy and time left in your life. Why focus on stuff that's not worth focusing on? Just try to enjoy it, you know? And also, you know, not to get too, too a down subject, but uh, we've lost a couple band members at this point. One of them was, I mean, both of them are my great friends. I, mean, I had Joe Skyward, who played bass with us during Amazing Disgrace and beyond. I mean, I made a re- a record with Joe. We we collaborated, uh, toured with his daughter's band. He toured with my band, my solo band. And then Darius Manwala, who was... I got Darius into the Posies. He was uh, the drummer... For my solo band for like three years before he was in the Posies, and he was arguably my best friend. You know, I mean, just and it was a crushing blow to lose lose these guys. So it makes one appreciate how sweet things can be if you let them. If you can let yourself enjoy things and just you know keep on keeping on. You know, that's I think that's the whole point of life is to get some enjoyment out of it and and do as many good things as you can and and not give up. When
1: you lose someone who's not just a close friend but a core member of the band, is there a question about whether you Keep going from there.
0: Well, in our case, um, you know, it's it, the core members of the band have just always been Ken and I. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you, if you I looked it up on Wikipedia to figure it out, you know, there's seven members of the Posies besides. Let me see if I can do this: Arthur, Rick, Roberts, Mike Musburger, Dave Fox, Brian Young, Joe Skyward, Matt Harris, and Darius Man So there's been seven. You know, Posie. Uh, you know, in the rhythm section, there's seven the non- changes. Ken Johns. Exactly, non Ken Johns. And you know, Ken has been fond of describing us now as like kind of like the indie rock Steely Dan, basically. You know, except that you know both of us sing and and uh, you know, there's a lot more evenness in the writing. I think you probably but, have very
1: strong opinions about jazz music as well.
0: There you go. And and also uh, the way that we have kind of started this thing as a project, anyways. I mean, the Posies was not. We were not a band. We were. An idea. We were a studio. Uh, we were a studio in, in yeah. my house that I I grew up in. My father put a studio in in the, my my teenage house, basically the house I lived in during when I was in high school. I mean that was long before the era. Also dating me even more. Thank you for this very much. Of everybody having recording software on their their laptops. You know now anybody yeah. can make a record in the bathroom in an hour. You know basically, but back then it was uncommon to have this. And, and my house kind of became a clubhouse, I guess, for Ken and I, particularly for me to start out. I learned re- about recording. And I started, you know, spending. What, what, what's that book? What's his name? Malcolm Gladwell. Malcolm Gladwell the 10,000 right? like 10, hours. hours yeah. yeah, I put in my 10,000 hours by the time I was 17. Yeah. You know, so, and then I started working on Posey's records. I, I made records for Sub Pop. In fact, half of what I do today, half, you know, what helps me be able to maintain in the business is half of my income comes from producing and mixing records still. You know, that's. A large part of what I do. It's, it's good to be diverse folks in this industry, especially in this day and age, you know.
1: How much of the bands has been really defined by that, has been defined by the fact that you're really studio first?
0: Well, I mean, I, I want to qualify that by saying that I think we're really a, a live band as well, but... It's just what defined us was the fact that two people had this vision, and that still is to this day what the band is. I mean, it's not going to be the band without the one or the other of either Ken or I. It's just there's no way it could happen. I mean, I guess we could try. I guess, I mean, Pink Floyd did it, but I don't know how well it actually came off in the end. That's arguable. But yeah, I mean, really, it's it's everything we've done is has grown from the seed that we planted back in high school together. And we're still here as a result of that. And that is definitely a large part of what defines us.
1: How seriously were you taking it in those days when it it was to you at first? I mean, it sounds like you kind of were, you know, farting around a little bit at first. Well, I
0: mean, yeah, but I mean... It's just all that, that I did and we did. I mean, I, I would, you know, I, I would go out and do other things on weekends and have fun and date girls and, you know, we try to get people to buy us alcohol and things like that, you know, because we are underage. But, um, you know, there's some weekends I just go home and I spend all weekend in the studio. I mean, literally. And I was a self starter back then, you know, and and Ken was too. It's funny with the way that things have evolved in the in the in the music business now it's almost like returning to diy a little bit with social media and the fact that we have you know we tour very bare bones and we do you know I mean can tour manages uh we we manage ourselves basically in a way it's kind of returning back to where things started you know it's kind of a a circular thing if you will
1: has technology been a, a net positive when it comes to producing records i mean at both sides we had a John VanderSlice on the show, at I know John a while ago, and you know he essentially said, obviously he's a proponent of analog
0: recording. Oh, he sure is. Yeah, let's not talk digital with John. Yeah, that's like that's like talking politics with some people. You don't want to do it, you know. And and he said, you
1: know, he said like, you know, I, I asked him some question about Pro Tools, and and you know, the the consensus with a lot of people is that we're at a point now where it's really hard to distinguish the sound of something recorded to Pro Tools versus studio. But he said one of the big downsides is the amount of control it affords you can be bad when you spend days working on a a kick drum sound you can polish it down, you can polish it too much, you can spend too much time on something and it's harder to just sort of
0: get it out the door. I would agree with him to an extent. I mean, I, I do think it is amazing. I think I think having tools that allow you to do whatever you can imagine is is, is almost, a, it's a blessing and a curse, sure, because then you can overdo things, but then you can also do things you would never have been able to do otherwise, so I like both things. I will say that a record like Frosty on the Beater, for example, it's all analog, and our producer for that record, this uh, man named Don Fleming uh, from New York, actually, uh, his big thing on that record was not letting us do anything more than a couple of times. I think almost all the guitar takes on that record are first 2nd or 3rd guitar takes probably not too many punches or edits. A couple of those drum takes are like first takes. It's just like me and Mike Musburger, drummer extraordinaire, who's playing with us on this 30th anniversary tour. Thank God. He's amazing. Go see him if you can. We just record these songs just with myself on guitar and him on drums and a a scratch vocal. We play it from the start and we'd actually play it all the way to the end. And that would be the take. I know that sounds crazy to some people now, but that is a cool way to make records. It is cool having to perform. And I do think that the one downside or one of the downsides to modern technology is that it allows people to, I don't a Coast as a producer and uh, an engineer, I get a lot of people who I work with who send me vocal tracks, and there are people who honestly, some of them, they're not the strongest singers, and they know it. But it's my job to to like take these takes and make a, a vocal out of it and make it sound like a really really good vocal, and it, it can be done. You can you can actually work with the technology and you know make something that sounds pretty damn near perfect. But sometimes I get frustrated and I think to myself like maybe we should just go sing this again. Like why don't we just go do it and why don't you just just sing it why don't you just do it let's just do it and you know get it 80% there instead of like 50% there I see where John's coming from but I'm not a purist and I don't think anybody in the posies is a purist so is
1: there just sort of an understanding between the two of you at this point this is going to keep going on for as long as you're able
0: you know I think so I mean it it, it feels implied we, we've we already talked about making another record after we do the 30th anniversary I mean I don't know if it will happen right away after you know all the touring we're doing this year and also I think a huge thing that helps us stay together and want to keep working together is the fact that it's important and to do other things, I mean, it is an open relationship. Basically, it's it is, like, an, and you're not living together, right? We, we've been we've been married to each other before, uh, you know, uh, you know, so to speak. But um, you know, at this point, everything we do outside of what we do together is greatly beneficial, you know, to both of us, just for the psyche, and also I think for the music too, because you know, you do other things. You, I mean, we're kind of like sponges. I mean, we you, you work with other people and you get new ideas, yeah. and that's how it works, and it's what keeps it interesting and fresh. And I think we probably got it a few more records than us
1: were you at each other's throats or you know had stuff gone down in you know i guess like sort of the late 90s when you Split the first time
0: Oh oh yeah I mean sure I mean you know there was a just being crammed in the vans and well, the buses for yeah. so long. I mean and, and just you know also going through our own issues as individuals I mean everything from marriages falling apart to well it's like the VH1 behind the music I mean it really it happens to every band I think I mean if you can find me I dare you to find one rock biography about a band of any note. That at some point doesn't have major issues. You know, I mean look at the I mean the Kinks, you know, the you know Ray and Day Dave, Dave Davies. There's this little band called Oasis you might have heard of. I mean
1: I'm just saying like it's 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 funny to me that both of your examples involve siblings. Which well, sort of says a lot about your relationship with Ken.
0: There is a sibling relation Kind of vibe to what we have, yeah, that's fair. I mean, it's not. It's I wouldn't say it's a hundred percent, but sure, sure, sure. There's an aspect of that. You know, we were best friends in high school. We I, I met Ken when I was 13, he was 14. Uh, we, we went to the same school. We dated some of the same girls. I mean, we got really excited about a lot of the same music at very formative period in our lives. And we also experienced a lot of firsts together. We made our first, you know, real record together. We went on our first real tour together. We got signed to a major label together. I mean, we went to Europe together on a major tour for. The first time we both ended up playing with Big Star together. I mean, the list goes on and on, you know. So, you know, at this point, having as much history as we do together, any differences that we've had or had, I mean, even if, if there are times, even now, like where sometimes, you, you know, because you're around each other a lot, you can rub each other the wrong way, maybe on a day, because, you know, too much togetherness or whatever. I think it happens to everybody, really. We're having a great time now. We we fully appreciate each other, I feel, and I think he feels the same way, that we've learned how to give each other the space to be ourselves and then have a good time together. It's really, I'm going to sound getting mushy here, but it's it's really a beautiful thing to see because it wasn't always like that. And to have it happen after all this time that we can still be doing it and arguably maybe even enjoying it more than we did back then... That's kind of a beautiful thing.
1: I've talked to a lot of bands, and and the consensus with so many of them is that it, that in order for it to really function and continue to function, there has to be almost like a dictatorial relationship, or one person has to be the clear person in charge of everything, making the decisions. But you know, you obviously you're not built like that.
0: No, I mean, I, I will admit that uh, my partner is definitely better at, at like managerial stuff than I am. I mean, he's he's got the skills for sure in that, and I so appreciate it. But we do have our roles, and also we're kind of unique in that. I mean, if you really look at our catalog and what we've done, I mean. It's, it's a 50-50 thing, and it's, there's, there's no one singer that really has gets more airtime on the records and and whatnot we we designed it that way
1: when when you're at the height of your powers though it's impossible i would assume not to be competitive in that relationship
0: i don't think so no i mean I, I think you know more so back in the day because also this is going to sound strange but it was hard i think for us back when we were on a label like dgc geffen because you got two singer songwriters in the band and whose songs do you promote which singer do you promote yeah and it's even gotten worse in this day and age because, I mean, attention spans have gotten even more limited. I mean, you know, now people just have one name. It's like now it's Beyonce, Sia. You know, it's like you can't even have someone have like, you know, a full name anymore, basically. But, you know, back in the day, I mean, I would say from my perspective that there were certain records that I got promoted more and there's another record where Ken got promoted yeah. more. Like I had all the singles on Frosty on the Beater. I mean, the only video or two videos from that are songs I wrote. And, like, Amazing Disgrace comes along and all the singles are Ken. And I think there actually was a kind of, like, well, let's let's try promoting this one guy. Let's try promoting that one guy. Because it's confusing, I yeah. guess, to try to... How do you... You can't... Do you promote them as a duo? How do you do this? I mean, it was just so complicated with us, you know? It's not like uh, you had the one guy you could just shine the spotlight on.
1: The way they're promoting it was at a result of, like, trying to keep it 50-50, of not making one person the star. Because, I mean, that certainly would have worn on the other person.
0: Well, sure. But, I mean, it really... With us, it comes down to the songs, you see, it's like the songs were the star. You just happen to have more of the kind of pop hits on that record? Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know why, for instance. I mean, I think that... I mean, I guess Solar Sister kind of got released, sort of, but it didn't get the same push. Like, there, there should have been a video for Solar Sister. And then, you know, we made Amazing Disgrace, and we couldn't get a video made for right. any of the songs. And I... I, I was very frustrated by that. And I will admit that it was also getting to be a kind of a dark period in, in my life. I was kind of getting depressed and things like that. I went through a period where I was, looking back on it now, I probably was completely clinically depressed and didn't really realize it at the time. But, you know, and I I think people were frustrated too. I think, I think Ken was really frustrated that things hadn't gone better as far as commercial success. And we went through our whole cycle of amazing disgrace and we weren't really even communicating anymore at that point. It was, you know... And we lost, for instance, we'd lost also members of our band. Like, Mike Musburger wasn't our drummer anymore. I mean, you know, Ken and him had a big falling out. That really had nothing to do with me, and I was I was pretty gutted by that because I felt like we lost one of the best drummers on the planet, in my opinion.
1: Was there a sense that you just you couldn't take the project any further anyway, that you had gone as far as it would go at the
0: time? No, I think it was more that, you know... We really hadn't had a break, and also, you know, we were young adults and needed time to figure ourselves out as individuals. I mean, we've been lumped together, you know, since high school at that point, and maybe some better decisions could have been made as far as how to handle not being a band anymore but basically after Amazing Disgrace we I mean I think Ken says that I was the guy that you know I said I wasn't going to do it anymore and that you know we should return to our roots and maybe make one last record on the, the label that put out our first record this label called Pop Llama we put out failure on Pop Llama so we returned to failure we, we put out this record called Success as like you know haha, it's like the bookend there would have been a, a huge payday involved yeah. uh, more recording budgets and publishing money but I wasn't really paying attention to that at the time I was I was definitely a little out of it and also i was also coming from another perspective which we weren't really friends anymore i didn't see what the point was it's like that's kind of how our band started if we weren't enjoying each other as people we weren't making like millions of dollars like the who were yeah. or like oasis ended up making it was in so they- a
1: purely financial transaction
0: exactly and so it's like well if, you, if it's not going to be about the money you got to get something out of it and it's got to be enjoyable. And, it, and it, it really wasn't At that point It was it was a slog
1: At the end of the day It is a job Um, You're you're lucky that you get to do What you love right.
0: And you're going to have bad nights You're totally right And I wish to be On my respect I wish in some ways I'd been more professional yeah. For sure about some of those things Because I realize that now That yes there is the, the, the job aspect to this And also Just how lucky you are To be able to even get to do Any of this You know Even at, 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 at any level Because you know We're still like In the, probably the top One you know To five percentile yeah. of band.
1: But having Split and come back, It sounds like That's a big part of What's made you more appreciative Is having that time
0: Well, sure, and you know we still have had ups and downs uh, in that restructuring. We worked consistently, but we haven't put out records consistently. It's been like every five years kind of cycle for our records. So there's lots of shows that have been played together, and lots of touring in between that, and then there's like side projects, solo projects, other things. But right now, it feels like I don't know. I gotta. I I like to pick a better word than reinvigorated. It just sounds so cliched. But and also again, maybe it's just because we're getting older and realizing you know that there's only so much time left to do this. But I would like to keep doing what we're doing and proceed forward with this this good place I think we've ended up at yeah. i mean if you if you'd seen been on the inside for all the things we've been through and with each other and with you know and without each other to be here now is really quite miraculous.
1: Are you kind of shocked every time you know you it, it's five years between records and you come out and you can still fill up a place like the Bowery ballroom
0: um yeah, in a way, I mean, i'm I'm just I'm grateful for it. You know, it's again, I think it's a testament to the fact that the fans that we do have are are in it for the long haul. I mean, are there millions of them? No, could I would maybe we could use a few hundred thousand more of them? That would be awesome. But the keep fan- doing podcasts. There I'm you go. That that's awesome. So uh our 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 career is quite unique, I think. And if you look at all the things we've done together and individually and all the, the various things like, you know, having Ringo Starr from the Beatles cover one of our songs or the Big Star thing that we'd play in a big star for seventeen years, you know, or can get to play with REM and us having friends and, you know, all sorts of bands and it's pretty unique. Situation to be in the kind of the kind of uh, career that we've had.
1: It sounds like this sort of moment or these, you know, this, this past decade, the past several years is the most purely enjoyable experience you've had with regard to the band.
0: Well, it's interesting you should say that because yeah, I mean, just even doing things like being out on the road now is, is actually fun it it didn't used to always be fun again that has to do with attitudes i think also and you know i will say yeah i mean my attitude is definitely adjusted to the point where you know i don't take it for granted anymore there were times when i did because i just thought it was you know i had things going on and also it wasn't enjoyable i mean there were points that you know everybody was just off in their own camps in their corners but it seems it feels like we all have each other's backs now and i think that's got to be there personally for me it's it's yes it's a job yes it's a business but we're making music here you know we're, we're, we're expressing emotions and we're sharing our emotions and you know playing music for people so I, I can't just put that under the same category as like a bean counter kind of mentality you know there has to be some soul and there has to be some camaraderie and that totally exists now without a doubt
1: There you go. That was John Auer recorded that one right ahead of the 30th anniversary show at the Bowery Ballroom. Thanks so much to him for taking the time to do that. I very much enjoy that conversation. Thanks to Carrie at Conquer for helping set that up. Thanks to you guys as always for listening to the program. If you like the show, there are a number of ways to support us. You can rate and review us on iTunes or Google Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you happen to hear podcasts like us on facebook follow us on tumblr that's riylcast.tumblr.com that is the first and best place to get all of your riyl related information and uh, i think that's about it for this week so stick around because we are coming up on episode number 300 next week we will see you then with another episode of riyl